Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. Hello. You sounded like my mum there. <laughs> You've been unwell. I have had the COVID. I was expecting just to get a mild cold with barely a symptom, which apparently was what most people had. But I got punched in the head by it quite dramatically and have had all the major symptoms other than needing to go to hospital, thank goodness. I'm really sorry to hear that because obviously when I had it, I'd had my booster sort of a few days before. So I re- I had a cold. My wife's had it this week and she's had it quite badly as well. So I feel for you. Are you okay now? Sort of. I had terrible pains, which I won't go into, but if anyone would like to know like my full medical status over the past join us on the patreon where we'll be sharing (laughs) rachel's entire medical history yeah you'd have to pay for that it's like an only fans thing um for jews where you just talk about your medical symptoms but yeah you know happy to fill you in on that just you know tweet me but now i've been left with as you can hear no voice I've got the horrendous cough, so if there's any weird pauses or glitches when you're listening, it's because Philip's had to edit out me having a coughing attack. And I'm so tired. I feel tired and stupid all the time. And I'm used to only feeling tired. So I think one of the symptoms of COVID would appear to be an awareness of your stupidity that we've known about for some time. Uh, No, I, I do think it's interesting that maybe the listeners don't know how we put these episodes together. But you may well notice as you're listening to this week's episode that there are differences in the audio quality, certainly at the beginning and the end as well. So check out those times where we've tried to sneak in a pickup from a mistake that was made or a a phrase that was dropped or something. And uh, if you get them all, there's no prize. (laughs) Also, just for those of you who are listening and might enjoy this fact, Philip just keeps saying to me, don't talk, don't talk. This is like a dream come true for him. Um, Save your voice for the episodes, he kept saying. And he's very, very excited that it's difficult for me to make sounds come out. Again, another symptom of COVID would appear to be memory loss, because I spent the last two years telling you, don't talk, don't talk, save it. Would you like to tell the people who have tuned in the birthday present I gave you a few years ago? I would like to, yes. You gave me coupons, vouchers for Rachel's silent time. Uh, <laughs> that were a You've not yet been cashed in because no sooner had you given me those, the entire world shut down. I still have them somewhere and I will be waving them in your face very soon, I imagine. I thought that was a proper good gift for you, half an hour of my silence on vouchers. Definitely. Uh, the best thing about them was is you'd forgotten to put any kind of watermark, so actually I've mass-produced them. <laughs> um, well, you sold them on to my family. Yep. Every single person you've ever met has one. <laughs> So this is maybe an odd thing to ask as to how Jewish your week has been, because obviously you've been ill, which is, I think, one of the most Jewish things you can be (laughs) as a hypochondriac world that we live in. But Rachel, how Jewish has your COVID been? I mean, it's been, in a way, the least Jewish week ever, because I got ill on the second day of Pesach. And so I sort of missed out on any of the enjoyment of the rest of Passover, like couldn't do big family meals, couldn't have guests, didn't cook all the, you know, special Jewish foods that we have uh, in our family. You know, every family's got their special recipes. Um, didn't do any of that. We're supposed to have my son and daughter-in-law to stay, couldn't have that. I was just like in bed like a zombie, a very coughing, crying, agony zombie for about a week. And then since I've tested negative, it still hasn't been Jewish because I've not really left my house or done anything. It feels like I'm swimming through kosher custard all the time in my brain at the moment. This feels a little bit like a tame version of the recently 
controversial Jimmy Carr joke where you would say something like with COVID, no one really talks about the fact that you couldn't <laughs> see your family, you couldn't make the meals, you couldn't prep this, you couldn't eat the Pesach food because no one wants to talk about the positives. Um, <laughs> To some people, that would be an amazing result. Yeah, not for me. I like all that stuff, you know. And I did try to make matzo bry, like not quite from my sick beds. I sort of yeah, put scrambled on, eggs. I literally came down in like seventeen layers, shivering with a, like hundred and one temperature. And I was like, we have to have matzo bry once this pesach. But then I went back to bed for a bit because I felt so grim, and I just left it all soaking. And it was gross, like sad scrambled eggs. In this one instance, my daughter wasn't even here to see me admit it on this occasion. So I feel sad for her. Well, if you're listening, tweet in with a, I told you so. <laughs> yeah, it's honestly been a very, for me, and I don't know if this is also a Jewish mother thing, having to literally stop everything, not work, not clear up the house. I haven't put away any of the Pesach stuff. It's all just been shoved in a different room. Um, the sort of lack of being able to control freak my life is proving very, very hard. More than, in a way, when the pandemic stopped everything, I found this a bit harder. What you found having COVID harder than the actual pandemic when you did not have COVID. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that makes sense. I feel a bit bad now because my most Jewish thing of the week is, is about being on a cruise. Um, so, Tell uh, us about your most Jewish thing, Philip, while I mute my microphone and cough my guts up one moment. I had a last minute booking for a cruise. It came in and I literally had less than 24 hours to get to an airport, fly to Athens, join a ridiculously wealthy group of people on a part of their world cruise and do a couple of nights of comedy for them. And actually it turned out to be a lot of fun. They were such a nice crowd of people really really lovely a lot of americans and quite a few jews as well and i was there over seder night and i very nearly managed to go to a seder on the ship but there wasn't space there was no room at the inn it was the night of my first show as well so timings are a bit awry. And then loads of the Jews came to my show afterwards. You missed a trick there because you what? could have just like opened the door as Elijah like three quarters of the way through. The problem is the average age of this cruise was the original cast of Cocoon. So <laughs> I think if, knew they Elijah. Seen, if they'd seen a ghostly figure opening the door, they all would have walked towards the light. <laughs> it was just really lovely and, and nice to know that I did have the option to go to a Seder if I'd wanted to. I did FaceTime my family from the ship who were having their Seder at the time. So I was sort of part of one. So that was one thing that happened. And the other thing that happened, which was just quite an amusing story and felt a little bit Jewish, was the small talk I had to make with the taxi driver between the airport in Athens and the ship, because he wasn't really interested in me once he found out I didn't know anything about football and there was nothing in common to talk about. And the only other thing we spoke about was when we drove past a petrol station and he commented on the price of petrol and how it was really disgusting that it's, it's petrol so expensive now and he's having to pass that on to his passengers. It's so expensive, it's not fair. And I was just sat there trying to work out whether it was appropriate for me to tell him that he's driving an electric car. I don't think he gets to <laughs> moan about petrol prices or pass that expense on to his customer. It felt quite Jewish because in my mind, I was thinking, I want to make my point 
but I also want to get there safely. Yeah, that's hilarious, an electric car. There we are. That's our most Jewish things of the week. Rachel, obviously, I hope you feel better Thank very you. soon. We didn't put the episode out last week, partly because of COVID situations and also partly just because of Yom Tov and, and how the days fell in the week. It just wasn't possible to get this episode out, which is a shame because we've been so looking forward to this one. It's two friends. I knew Francesca from when I was a teenager. We did youth theatre shows together. I think the first show we did was Annie. I was Daddy Warbucks. I can see you as Daddy Warbucks, actually. Oh, yeah. I'm well known for adopting orphans. Um, <laughs> so only uh, redheads, admittedly. So, so it was yeah. lovely to have her on the show. She's now a very well-respected author, and it was a delight to speak to her. And Joshua Siegel as well, good friend, great poet. Josh is also a great friend of mine, and I love his poetry. I've actually put him in my Jewish Chronicle articles down then as my favourite contemporary Jewish poet. But he actually created my most middle class moment of my life because years ago he gave me a signed copy of one of his books of children's poems for my youngest son, who was then in primary school. And I used to do a rota with my nieces and nephews and I had a car full of children. And as I picked them up from school, I said, oh, look what I've been given for you and gave my son the book. And then I drove home while four children in my car read poems at each other. And I thought, well, yeah. I don't I don't know what that means for the class system, but it does feel very, very super middle class thing to happen on your way home on the school run. That is very sweet. It was a lovely episode. So sit back, enjoy and try not to get too distracted by Rachel's croaks. <laughs> I'm Philip Simon. And I'm Rachel Krieger. We are two Jewish comedians and one of us has just had COVID. I'm Reform, so when I had COVID, as soon as I tested negative, I stopped isolating. And I'm Orthodox, so when I had COVID, literally till about two days ago, as soon as I tested negative, I thought I'd better keep a few more days just to be sure. This show is the audio equivalent of petrol. It fuels your weekend, is what everyone's talking about right now, and you're just going to have to take our word for it isn't controlled by Russia. In each episode, we chat to two of our favourite Jews about their lives and experiences growing up and how much Jewishness plays a part. Are they Diesel or Disraeli? Welcome to Jew Talking to Me. Let's introduce our guests and it is a very literary lineup today. Joshua Siegel is a highly acclaimed award-winning professional poet, educator and author. He's a writer and performer for BBC Television and an official National Poetry Day ambassador. Francesca Siegel, no relation, is an award-winning writer and journalist. Her first novel, The Innocence, won the Costa First Novel Award, the National Jewish Book Award for Fiction, the Sammy Raw Prize, and was long-listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction. She's the author of two novels and one work of non-fiction. Let's welcome Josh and Francesca. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. I would like it made known that I once won a writing award as well. I got a £5 gift voucher for writing a short story when I was about seven. I don't like to go on about it. Um, Do you know, as little prices go, that's not so bad. And and in those days, £5 was, that's a lot of petrol back then. What did you buy with it? I bet my parents made me buy a book. Plus it was a book token, but it was probably one of these educational books. Anyway, you're not here to discuss my literary prowess. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that Rachel is orthodox and I'm reform. But Joshua, what kind of a Jew are you? 
I'm kind of interested. My parents were members of a Masorti synagogue, but we, we never really went very often. Uh, so we were pretty much just secular. When I was late teens going into university, I decided that I would become something of a militant atheist of the Richard Dawkins variety. And I remained an atheist for quite a while, totally uninvolved in Judaism, with the exception of regular Friday night dinners with my family. But when I met my wife, who was born a non-Jew, grew up non-Jewish, she decided that she wanted to convert. Nothing to do with, it wasn't at my behest or anything like that. So we're now members of a reform synagogue. We don't go an awful lot, but I'm certainly more involved now than I used to be. So I would say reform slash secular really would be how I would define myself. And when she did her conversion, did it suddenly make you have to take on loads of things that like religiously that you'd given up? Um, not so much. I mean, it did mean I had to inevitably be much more involved in the life of the synagogue. Mm -hmm. There was a weekly Hebrew class. I went to a Jewish primary school where we learned Hebrew. So I had to get reacquainted with that language, which was interesting. Um, yeah, and it just kind of brought me back in touch with an extended Jewish community, which I've really fallen out of touch with for, for a long time. But in terms of like having to do stuff, not massively, to be honest. I didn't have to give up certain foods because I don't eat meat anyway. So it's not such a, a big deal there. Well, I was glad to hear that you hadn't given up your Friday night dinners because that would have really <laughs> made me sad. Francesca, how about you? How do you define as a Jew? It's sort of a good time to ask me that question because I'd say it's in flux a bit at the moment. I've got three kids who are, I've got six-year-old twins and a two-year-old. And we have Shabbat every week. We mark all the festivals. We light candles on Shabbat. The children fall on the challah like starving wolves on the wildebeest. <laughs> um, and it means a huge amount to me to transmit that Jewish identity to them. It's really, it's something that's important and it's, I find, very moving to connect to with them. But I am also increasingly and pretty devotedly atheist. And actually, for me, there's no conflict with that in Judaism as an adult, because I'm capable of, you know, Judaism is a very broad church. As if you talk to people um, who didn't grow up Jewish, they just totally don't get that. that no, they don't understand it. it. But there's, for me, there's no conflict at all. But yeah. the thing is, when you're talking Judaism 101 with six-year-olds, it becomes a bit more complicated to say... I think, in essence, I'm a humanist Jew. And if we were in the States, I think I'd be joining some kind of really brilliant humanist temple and piling in really actively to services that were really focused on cultural Judaism and on like bringing meaning to and tikkun olam to like what we would all believe was the only olam going. Right. But in London, I'm a bit homeless, I think. So I need someone out there listening to found a humanist shul. You could do it. Oh, gosh. We can put a yeah. shout out on our social media and see if we can get a, a you know, I, I have had a Google. I have had a Google and always the most exciting things that come up are like in California or something. Yeah. But if someone out there It is know, an American thing. When my wife and I got married, we were looking for a the wording of our ketubah to be meaningful to us, not just the typically religious element of it. And we found a website and we found a reform one and the humanist one, which we merged together to make what made sense to us. So your marriage contract isn't like seven camels and three donkeys. What's on it? She's, she's worth at least five donkeys. I mean, come yeah, on. basically it's written. It's written on hemp. <laughs> um, no, it's it's standard stuff. Can't remember it now. We don't really stick to it, but it's um, it's the usual. It's the usual stuff. But it's it's more about building a home together rather than 
you know, she will build a home for you. It's- if you'd ever seen my husband trying to do DIY, then you'd understand why Al said she will build a home for you. Yeah, but that's because Jews don't do DIY. <laughs> the rabbi okayed it, and it was an American company. I think there is, as you say, Californian kind of not quite happy clappy because it's more than that. It's more meaningful. We respond so differently to things at different stages. You know, my husband and I, before we were married, we used to live in Boston, and that was before kids and before everything else. And one of the really exciting things about being in Boston was this just like absolute smorgasbord of shawls that you could choose from. And we went to a reform shawl there and they went out into the street to sing Lachadodi like evangelicals. I love and they that. rang a Tibetan bell at the beginning for like a minute of meditation. And I left. And we looked at each other and we were like, what the hell was that? And we laughed about it. And now I like ache for that shawl. Right. I've not been back. And at the time I thought it was ridiculous, happy, happy American, whatever. And I'm half American, so I'm allowed to make disparaging comments. <laughs> and, and now I want that shawl to be here. Like 15 years later, that's the shawl I want to go to. But at the time it was so alien and so different that I just wasn't ready for it. We go to a shawl where they have a guitar, which is kind of along those lines. <laughs> Not quite out in the street, but um, my brother-in-law, who grew up pretty orthodox, that was just totally anathema to him. The fact that you would have a guitar in, in a shul is just, you know, that blew his mind. As an orthodox Jew, Jewish things happen to me all the time. That is just my day-to-day life. But Francesca, what's the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? I don't know about recently, because... You know, none of us have been leaving the house a great deal for Jewish things to happen. But what that question made me think of was um, I won a prize a couple of years ago that I was super, super excited about. And there was this Muscle big tough. sort of schwanzy, in fact, you used the word schwanzy earlier, this big schwanzy party in this lovely old house in Bloomsbury, very literary. And I was feeling terribly pleased with myself. And then there was a point in the party when they called all the, there were actually loads of prizes that evening, like sort of 30 or something. And they called all the winners up onto the stage to have their photo taken together. And everyone fell silent while this moment was happening. There was probably about 100 people at the party. And so the photographer arranged this all in a big group. And then he raised his camera and then lowered it and said, Francesca, I think I've taken your photo before. And so I thought, well, you know, you know, the imposter syndrome maybe is unwarranted. It seems I'm a fancy author who gets photographed all the time at a party. And he was like, yeah, no, no, I have. I've taken your photo before. That I took your bat mitzvah photos. And the, wow. <laughs> the room just fell about. <laughs> and I felt about two inches tall. And I was just thinking, yeah, yeah, no, the imposter syndrome is real. I am, in fact, 13. <laughs> That's really funny. That's very sweet. I'm not sure. It should have come up at that moment, though. That doesn't seem very fair. No, but that's the thing about any kind of public speaking or public event when you're a Jew is these, you know, I remember giving a talk in New York. My first. I knew your father. This is the thing. So I was so excited to be giving it. It was a very Jewish book, so I did a lot of, like, temple talks. And this was one of the first ones I gave. I was so nervous to be speaking about the book. I prepped so much. I spoke for, like, 40 minutes to some Hadassah group or whatever it was. And then at the end, they said, does anyone have any questions? And two hands shot up and the mic went over to the first person. And she said, are you married? <laughs> <laughs> I talked about my book for half an hour and that was her question. And then I sort of felt very terribly crestfallen that that was all she was interested in. And they took the mic over to the other woman and she was like, oh no, that was my question too. <laughs> well, so t- did she have a son that she was trying to set you up with yes she did of course she did yes, she did. <laughs> yeah and he's here tonight yes <laughs> wow that's amazing 
Josh, what about you? What is the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? I feel like it's very Jewish to fixate on the question of what it means to be Jewish. And with that in mind, I wrote a poem a few months ago. And I, I don't normally talk about being Jewish at all in my work. But I was thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be Jewish? And I wrote a poem called On Being Jewish. It was, it was only about eight lines long. And I put it on Twitter. So the first Jewish thing that happened is the fact I wrote a poem about what does it mean to be Jewish? But then uh, the second uh, quite Jewish thing that happened is it gained some traction, which was good at first. Uh, was but the it first got... retweet your mum? No, actually. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, it got, it did get a lot of retweets. Um, and I went to bed feeling quite happy with myself. And then I woke up the following morning to an absolute cesspit of abuse wow. from both the left wing and the right wing. And I feel that that is quite Jewish. That's quite a Jewish experience. Yeah. I mean, that's um, satisfyingly balanced that you got abuse from both sides. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I felt pretty bad, to be honest. And I deleted it. And I think all trace of it has vanished off the internet now. Why did um, you delete it? It wasn't worth my mental health mm. to suffer this abuse. You know, I could have just stuck to my guns and said, this is me, this is who I am. But I'm not someone for whom Jewishness is particularly important for my professional life. So I thought I don't need this really. And I, I, I deleted it. Mm. And in case anyone's going to ask me to recite the poem, I looked for it on my computer and I actually can't find it anymore. So maybe I deleted it off my entire device. I don't know. The Chinese will have it. Probably, yes, probably, <laughs> yeah. probably. Do you remember what the balanced arguments were, the for and against? The well, people? basically, it was a series of opposing statements. So the first line was something like, I'm a capitalist and I'm a communist. I am too white and, and I'm not white enough. And I think the left were having a go at me because I didn't talk about Palestine and the injustices and uh, what have you got to say about the oppression going on. And the right just called me a Jewish faggot, really. The thing with the right, at least you know they're bad, but with the left, kind of, I like to think I'm one of them. So that was particularly galling to get that, especially given that I purposefully didn't mention Israel once. So there you go. It does feel that you don't need to mention Israel for an anti-Semitic rant to become about Israel. Totally. Yeah. How long was it up before you deleted it? About a day. I think that's really sad. I find that a really sobering story that you were put in that position where you felt so uncomfortable you weren't able to stand. Yeah, and I feel I feel that, um, I mean, this is a point which has been made, you know, innumerable times, but no other minority would, would be put in that position, uh, I don't think. No. But yeah, to be honest, it, it, was, it was pretty gutting. So I feel like that was quite a Jewish experience. But also, <laughs> this is then going to maybe add to it because we want to know what's going on in your lives at the moment, what's getting your goat, what's just playing on your minds. So, Joshua, following on from that, what's the matter, Bubbler? I'm going to go to something a bit more lighthearted, I suppose, is that my wife and I don't have kids, but we do have a cat. And my wife grew up with cats. This is the first cat I've ever had. And at first, when the cat was a kitten, I was very wary of her company, uh, the cat's company, not my wife's company. Um, <laughs> so my wife bonded with the cat as a kitten. And I've, you know, grown to love the cat over the course of two years. But it, we're at the stage where the cat only cuddles my wife and doesn't cuddle me ever. And I would love just once for the cat to crawl onto my chest and nestle with me, but she just won't. And my wife sort of flaunts it in my face. She says, Josh, come and look what Bluebell's doing. I hope Bluebell's the cat. 
Blue uh, Bluebell is the cat. Yes, indeed. Yeah. If you pick Bluebell up and put her down on you, does she stay or does she? No, absolutely. Does she stay or does she go? Um, yeah. No, she'll have none of it. They're very contrary but... cats. They do the opposite of what you want. They're not great, are they? They're very cute, and I feel like they get a lot of love because they're so cute. But they're, they're really not very nice. Um, <laughs> I love her. What can I say? I love her. I've never really liked cats that much. Like they're okay. I would never yeah. have one. When I was a student, I lived with a family and they went away for a few months. So I was looking after their cat and it came in one day with a massive gash down its chest. It had been hit by a car or something. Oh, and no. so they arranged for me to take it to the vet. But this stupid cat wouldn't get inside its cage. And you can't reason with a cat to pick this cat up. I had to wear oven gloves because it was so fiercely against being put. So I, the, the box was up on one end with it the door open, used the oven gloves, and then went and saved its life. Wow. Uh, yeah. Not all so, heroes wear capes. No, but they do all wear oven gloves. <laughs> are cats family... Jewish, do you think? Is no, I think dogs are Jewish. Oh, why That's do you good. think that? I don't know. I just think they're much more sort of food-focused and sort of emotionally excessive. Although mm. cats are quite judgmental and hold a grudge. That's true. <laughs> So, and you can't reason with them. No, it's no reasoning with a cat. Francesca, how about you? What's the matter, Bubbler? I've also got an animal story, which is odd. I like I am at war with a squirrel at the moment. I'm a sort of post-lockdown gardener. I'm one of these like cliches who took to gardening in lockdown, having never taken any interest in it whatsoever. And as is the way with like any new hobby, I am completely obsessed with it, with the kind of single-mindedness of someone who hasn't yet had enough time to get bored with what I'm doing. So I planted courgettes all over our flower beds in a sort of like victory garden mindset I don't know quite what I was doing and it was totally triumphant and I did that thing you're not meant to do which was like to let my courgettes turn into massive marrows um which are really like inedible and tasteless except mine weren't they were magnificent and it turned out I was some sort of idiot savant gardener um and then this year has been a catastrophe it was all beginner's luck having come at it with all the expertise of someone who's done it precisely one time before I planted out all my little tiny baby seedlings they were all so happy in their little loo rolls. And I had so many of them because when you have five people locked in a house, not allowed to go anywhere, you get through quite a lot of loo roll. And I saved all these loo rolls obsessively and filled them with these little baby seeds. And then one squirrel has murdered all of them. And she does one like every morning. Like when I'm having a coffee, I watch her. How do you know it's the same squirrel each time? Well, I, to be fair, I don't. But I think it is. I think she might be an anti-Semite. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'm now having the last laugh because I've covered the front garden with chicken wire. So basically, it now looks like I live in Pentonville. But <laughs> I will win. Squirrels have the Jewish characteristic of storing up food in case there'll be a time of deprivation to follow. That's true. Russell said no. your squirrels are nutsy. Hey. What could be more Jewish than interrupting our own show to remind you that back episodes of the podcast are available on all of the usual platforms, as well as our website, jewtalkingtome.com. And as well as catching up on things you've missed, why not be the first in line to hear all future episodes by subscribing to our Patreon? For just a small monthly donation, you'll get exclusive access to free gifts, bonus footage, live events, and much, much more. This is your chance to support the podcast, in return for which we'll keep doing what we've been doing, as well as putting out extra content just for you to find out more just go to patreon.com forward slash you talking without the g go on it's what your mother would want and now back to the show 
So Francesca, you've been busy preparing crops to feed your family with. And as a Jewish mother, that does my heart proud because I always want to know when I meet anybody, have you eaten yet? But do you have any particular memories that are connected to Jewish food or a meal that you shared with other Jews? I think Jewish food for me is New York, really. Like going to the Second Avenue Deli and getting them to vacuum pack pastrami to take back to London for my dad. And then the woman on the till who was older than Methuselah shouting at me, like, what are you doing buying pastrami without the mustard? Do you expect him to eat this without the mustard? Go and get the mustard to take back as well. <laughs> and I think like the joy of Jewish food in New York was like the ubiquity and the mainstream acceptance of it and the understanding of it. And I think as an English Jew, I find that very humbling. A lot of people have talked about New York when they've come on to our show and about the quantity and the quality of that food and that everybody eats it. But it's funny because sometimes when you describe things like salt beef or whatever even let's say chopped liver people look at you like you're eating things you shouldn't Something very healing in being understood without explanation i think mm-hmm. also i think there are some foods that when they're jewish they're more acceptable so chopped liver sounds absolutely fine pate freaked me out as a child i'd happily have shawarma but i would rarely go for a kebab effectively they're the same thing so did you have schnitzel but never escalop yes so yeah. schnitzel was family food escalop felt really fancy that's so <laughs> fascinating so it's just the familiarity of the of the name yeah which i think and i'm la- seeing... and hash browns Lacks and hash browns, yeah. definitely that's one. I see it with my kids. We have to be a bit pedantic with, with the kids and food because, you know, they won't eat casserole. But as they're fans of meatballs, we just tell them the casserole they're having is meat squares and that's fine. And they've not noticed it's a different texture or anything. Well, that doesn't matter. They're not the brightest. No, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's all about shame, isn't it? these, are two, these are two <laughs> kids that have been homeschooled by me. So, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, they've been kept down a few years. What about you, Joshua? What are your favourite Jewish food memories? I always grew up having Friday night dinner. Normally it would be my mum cooking. Occasionally, if we were going to stay with my grandparents who lived in Cardiff at the time, it would be my grandmother cooking. And it was always the same, absolutely the same every week. Roast chicken always, roast potatoes and some kind of vegetable. And it didn't really have any seasoning or anything like that particularly. But it was just the familiarity of having that same thing every week. It was like a cosy blanket, wasn't it? Just the knowing that that's there for you at the end of the week. And, and also at my mum's house, during the week, we would eat our, our food in the kitchen. But on Friday night dinner, we would get to go in the dining room, which felt like a really special occasion. That would have to be my primary memory of Jewish food. I remember actually going to New York. This might be absolute heresy, but I, I was slightly disappointed. Oh, controversial. My main thing was the portions. So I, I think I've been led to expect kind of gargantuan portions. And I think I was just slightly upset that they weren't quite big enough. So maybe people were overselling the size of these portions. I mean, the Second Avenue Deli will serve you a single matzo ball that's the size of the bowl. But I don't know. I can't speak for other New York establishments. So your only complaint... Josh is the quantity so the quality of the food was good you wanted more I mean my my standards aren't that high Uh, (laughs) it was perfectly tasty but it was yeah it was the portions it was too small it sounds like you're very cross with New York it feels like you could almost have a broigus with an entire city and maybe an entire people as well Jews of course love any kind of a broigus especially our favorite one as to whether it's bagel or bagel we obviously know it's bagel but we'd like to hear about your favorite feuds francesca my favorite feud might be apocryphal 
but I haven't really looked into it because if it is, I don't want to know because I think it's so brilliant. Um, <laughs> I am completely, I've always been obsessed with A.S. Byatt. She's one of my favourite novelists. And she and her sister, Margaret Drabble, famously don't speak. Although I think there has been sort of a rapprochement of sorts, but it certainly has been a long-standing and well-known literary feud. You know, a lot of people fall out over wills and inheritance after someone dies, who gets what is very highly charged. But I was told that Margaret Gravel and A.S. Wyatt fell out over custody of a tea set. And it wasn't who got the tea set, it was who got to write about the tea set. And one of them wrote about the tea set first, and the other one had wanted to write about the tea set. And I have absolutely no idea if there is even like a grain of truth in that story. But to me, that is such a perfect writer's feud. Was it ever resolved? I have no idea because I do have a suspicion that this is not in fact true. So I, despite the fact that I've heard it more than once. And so I'm just, because I enjoy it, I have probed no further. I've just Googled oh. them and they're Bruegers. And, okay, and apparently... They were in competition their whole lives and their whole careers. Like every time one won an award, another one had to win an award and whatever. And they had this really amazingly EastEnders-like competition between the two sisters. One of them said they worked very hard at the craft of their writing. And the other one went, well, you know, I just fell into writing after one of my kids had nothing to do. And that just seems like exactly the sort of argument I would get into with one of my siblings, you know, like that air of competition. I think if you are going to write about a tea set, though, you should definitely be up for the Costa Award. (laughs) (laughs) Josh, do you have a Bruegus? So I'm saying Josh Josh or Joshua? Uh, Either, either. I don't don't Um, want that to become the Bruegus. No, no, I'm I'm very comfortable with either Josh or Joshua. My favourite Bruegus is, I'm a big football fan, and it's kind of generally acknowledged that the two best players in the world at the moment are Messi and Ronaldo. And I really enjoy the Bruegus between their respective groups of fans, particularly on Twitter. And mainly because there's this acronym, the GOAT, greatest of all time. So there's this perennial argument over whether Messi or Ronaldo is the GOAT. So whenever someone does something good, all their fans, you know, they've each got their kind of separate army of fans. And they'll, they'll type, oh, look who's the GOAT now. And I just, I don't know, I find that quite amusing. People sort of having these bitter arguments on Twitter about who is the GOAT in footballing terms. Who do you so, think is the GOAT? I think Messi's the GOAT, personally. But they're really, like, huge fallings out. You know, internet fallings out. But feelings seem to run pretty strong. It's weird. There is beef between them. Or goats, whatever. (laughs) I think the problem is they get younger and younger. So eventually, they're not a goat. They're just a kid. (laughs) (laughs) So we've lived through some very dark times over the past couple of years. But if it all boiled down to Jews versus zombies, what special skills do you bring to the table that would ensure that we keep you in our survival group? Josh? I would sit with a notebook writing poems about the whole occasion which is exactly what I did during lockdown, to be honest. I thought to myself, well, well, I thought, you know, there were people doing amazing things and still are, you know, health workers and people who clean and take the, you know, people doing totally necessary things. So I thought to myself, what is my role as a writer? And I thought, you know, my role is to chronicle the times. So I've got a blog, which I think tens of people read. So I've got that. And yeah, I, I would write the poems about the zombies. Presumably, however, when you'd written those poems about the zombies, 
you'd get the zombies complaining on Twitter, you'd get the non-zombies complaining on Twitter, and you'd have to take it down a day later. All the zombies and the non-zombies would fight each other, and I would just, I don't know, I, I haven't thought through these things. I, I Maybe they do not. Maybe, yeah, through poetry, wow. Yeah. You'd be their king. What an achievement. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh, well, we'll keep that idea in reserve and see what we think about that. Francesca, what about you? What gives you your place on our team? Well, I really enjoyed this question because my response instinctively as a writer was basically exactly the same as Josh's which is that I would be there to observe and record and to capture the zeitgeist of the zombie apocalypse but then it immediately made me think of this episode of 30 Rock where Jack asks Liz Lemon exactly the same question and he says you know in a post-apocalyptic world how would society even use you? And so Liz says what Josh and I believe. She says, well, I'd be a travelling bard. And Jack just shakes his head and says, radiation canary. (laughs) (laughs) That's the title of my next book. Yeah, I think when the homesteading survivalist post-apocalyptic future comes, I will probably be a radiation canary. Um, Unless someone needs me to grow courgettes, but I can only do that in a guaranteed squirrel-free environment. Well, that's nearly all we've got time for. But how will our audience know what you're up to if you never call, you don't write? Normally, we'd allocate 20 seconds for this. But for you, 30. Joshua, where can our listeners find you? So I've got a website, which is joshuasegal.co.uk. Crucially, Siegel is S-E-I-G-A-L in my case. I'm also on Twitter, at Joshua Siegel. I am on Instagram, but I don't really use it that much. My latest book with Bloomsbury is actually aimed at three to seven-year-olds, and it's called Yapping Away. And I've also got a book for grown-ups. It's called Advice to a Young Skydiver, published by a company called Burning Eye. And they are in, like many companies, uh, lockdown has almost ruined them. So they they could really do with everyone purchasing about 50 copies of my book. (laughs) And Francesca, where can our listeners find you? Well, if they are listeners of Jewish interest, my first novel, The Innocence, is a contemporary recasting of The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton, set in Temple Fortune, which incidentally was the title that I wanted to give the novel, but my American publisher said it sounded like a Chinese restaurant, (laughs) Um, which when you think about it, it does. And so The Innocence is a very Jewish novel, but my most recent book was Mothership, which is a memoir, the 56 days that my twins spent in NICU after they were born very prematurely. And it is a diary of that time they were in hospital and a sort of a love letter really to the NHS which I started before this year, reminded us of their magnificence. But um, it's a love letter to the NHS, it's a love letter to my daughters, and it's a love letter to female friendship, really. It's a celebration of the women, fellow mothers that I met on the ward. And it is available um, in all good, independent and world-dominating evil conglomerate bookstores. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've really enjoyed this. And from now on, I will always think of Joshua as the Jew who doesn't eat animals but thinks messy as the goat. And Francesca as the Jew who would chronicle the apocalypse if she's not distracted by a squirrel eating her courgettes. And as my grandmother used to say when she wanted to end my telephone calls, you must have better things to do than talk to me. And you must have better things to do than talk to us, which is a good thing. And sadly, we've come to the end of this week's show. We'd like to thank our wonderful guests, Joshua Siegel and Francesca Siegel, 
Follow them on social media. Follow us on social media at Drew Talking without the G. Don't forget to subscribe, like and share the show with everyone you know. And check out patreon.com forward slash Drew Talking still without the G. If it's not a chutzpah to ask, we'd love you to leave us a great review as it helps other people to find the show. And join us next time on Drew Talking to Me. Jew Talking to Me was hosted by me, Philip Simon. And me, Rachel Krieger. It was produced by Russell Balkin and judged by our mothers. So your marriage contract... Sorry, go on, Francesca. No, go on. So your marriage contract... It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) We're too polite. I can do this all night.